0: That song really just touched something in me. I heard him singing uh, earlier as they were rehearsing, and, but I didn't really get all the words. But just hearing that sentiment, uh, we long for home. And for many of us, it's a home that we've never experienced, that we long for. We long for that because we live in a broken world, and we should not be shocked by the fact that things break. Nothing that you own is going to last forever. If you have a car that's a teenager, it's probably on its way out to Hooptyville very soon. When designers and manufacturers put together things, whether that's your television, whether that's your computer, whether that's your washing machine, whether that's your cell phone, it is designed with something called planned obsolescence in mind. That means that it's supposed to break. You're supposed to trade it in. You're not even supposed to fix it. In a broken world, we should not be shocked that our bodies break. If someone lives to be 100 years old, we think that's a remarkably long life. But 100 years, in terms of eternity, that's like a drop in the bucket. We shouldn't be surprised that our bodies break down. I used to be able to dunk a basketball. Now, when I watch someone dunk a basketball, I can pull a hamstring. <laughs> Just watching that. Things break, bodies break, and sadly, relationships break. Probably everyone here has been through broken relationships. Many times with close friends. People you thought will always be together. Best friends. People that you lived life with in a close way, and yet at some point the relationship breaks. Even family members estranged from one another. Still brother or sister or father or mother or son or daughter, but estranged and far away. It's sad. It's hard, but in this world, it seems like it's unavoidable. But today, as we look at the scripture, Jesus is going to talk about a relationship that should never break in God's design and God's plan in this world. It's a relationship that God specifically planned and designed to bring maximum glory to his great name. And that relationship is marriage. So we're going to look at that today. If you stand together with me, we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, just two short verses, verses 31 and 32 in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got it or if you can look up on the board, read with me Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 31. It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Today's sermon is titled, Covenant Oneness, Jesus Design." for marriage. Now, unfortunately, most of us in our Bibles, you have a title over that. And it's something about divorce, not really about marriage. But we'll see here as we look through this, Jesus is talking about God's design for marriage, the fundamental fact of what marriage is designed for. Let me pray one more time and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your word. Lord, be with us now and do the work that you want to do in each and every heart in this place. To the praise and to the glory of your great name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was talking with Pastor Tim earlier this week and say, why in the world did I choose to preach through the Sermon on the Mount we're running into hard passage after hard passage. Like, what was I thinking? Uh, But we're going through verse by verse the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the reasons that uh, not just I'm doing that, but it's the tradition of new life to go through biblical books verse by verse is because we want to know what is the whole counsel of God. So we don't come to a hard saying, a hard teaching and say, okay, let's do, a, do an end around on that one. No, we've got to deal with everything the Scripture says, and God wants to bless His people through His words. But before I go in and dig into this text, let me say this. The Christian church very often, and Christians, have often treated um, the subject of divorce in, I think, a shameful way. In, in a way that sets divorce apart as a kind or a type of sin that's like unlike any other sin. In many instances, it's almost been set up as the unpardonable sin. It's like a mark people are supposed to wear on their foreheads for the rest of their lives. They're a second-class Christian because they were divorced. But I would challenge that way of thinking because if we're reading through this sermon from Jesus, we just read about anger being the equivalent of murder. We just read about lust in your mind and in your heart being the equivalent of adultery. And so, if we treated those sins the same way that many people treat divorce, that we would have to walk around with murderer stamped on our forehead, with adulterer stamped on our foreheads. We Don't want to treat this in a different way than we treat any other type of sin. The reality is this way of thinking is problematical. It's unbiblical and it is pharisaical. We want to treat any sin in the way that it should be treated. Listen, this type of thinking is antithetical to gospel thinking. Christians are never, hear me, never defined by their sin. Being in Christ, here's the good news of Christ. It means that you have been separated from the penalty of your sin. It means that you are progressively being freed from the power of sin. And it means gloriously that one day you will be set apart from the very presence of sin in the Lord. Christians are defined by Jesus Christ, by his perfections, and by nothing and by no one else. So with these things in mind, we want to look at Jesus' teaching. On marriage, And here's the main idea of what Jesus is getting at. Marriage is God's idea, and it is meant to last as long as we live. But let's look through this, th- these verses here, and we'll look at some other verses as well. First of all, let's look at the first part of that. Marriage is God's idea. Verse 31 starts... It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, those verses in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, are the only verses in the Torah, those five books, that speak about divorce at all. That is significant. Those first five books, the books of Moses... It's actually a big deal. In reality, the Old Testament never commands or encourages divorce. But God does, however, deal with the reality of the broken world that we find ourselves in, in such a way that people are protected and God's glory is magnified in this broken world. So I want you to turn with me. For a moment, to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is dealing with divorce as well. And in Matthew 19, what's different is that this is coming out of a dialogue with the Pharisees. And I'm going to read a few verses from Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Scripture says that some Pharisees came to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's Genesis that Jesus is quoting, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 6. Now here's Jesus' editorial comment on Genesis 1 and 2. So the two, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, there's something going on in these verses. The Pharisees are trying to get to something. They have an agenda here, and Jesus always has an agenda as well. What are the Pharisees doing? They're looking for loopholes around divorce, and they're trying to find out, Jesus, what do you think about this? Trying to catch him again in thinking that is unbiblical or wrong so they can pin something on the Lord, but Jesus is pointing them back to God's original design for marriage. We can understand what the Pharisees are asking here, in particular as they ask their question in verse 3, if we understand the background of what was being taught in Palestine among uh, Jews at that time. There were two main schools of thought on divorce. And they were represented by the two greatest teachers who were in Judaism in the decades before Jesus came on the scene. One of the teachers was named Hillel, a great rabbi, a great teacher in many ways. And Rabbi Hillel taught that you could be divorced for basically any reason that you wanted to divorce. So, She burnt the biscuits. You can divorce her. She I just don't like the way she's dressing these days. You can divorce her Uh, in from Rabbi Hillel's perspective. You can divorce your wife. And this is in the question of the Pharisees for any and every reason. It didn't have to be a big thing. Just I just don't prefer her today. But he made sure that according to Deuteronomy 24, you, you have to present her with a certificate of divorce. So he wanted to make sure that things were done decently and in order. That's the way Presbyterians like to do things anyway, decently and in order, right? So present and that way the legal stuff is taken care of. The other school of thought was Rabbi Shammai. And in Rabbi Shammai's way of thinking, what he taught was the only possible reason for divorce was sexual defilement in the marriage. Either that you find out when you come into the marriage that she had been sexually active before the marriage or that there was something going on outside of the marriage uh, sexually. And so these were the, the reasons. And this is where the Pharisees are coming with this question. And the Torah deals with the fallenness of, Creation order, but when Jesus answers their initial question, he goes back to the way God designed marriage before sin. So God had designed marriage and woven it into the very fabric of His creation. Why? To show forth the greatness of God's faithful love for His people. Marriage was designed to show off God. The Bible starts with marriage. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible ends with marriage. Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, the marriage supper of Christ and his bride, the church. The Bible talks about this, and I mentioned this, I think, last week in Ephesians chapter 5:32. That the profound mystery of marriage, where two become one, is just not ultimately about a dude and a dudette, a man and a woman, but it's about Christ and his church. Husband and wife love is designed by God to be a high definition billboard so that people in this world will see the precious, powerful, and persistent love of Jesus for his people. That's what marriage is designed for. And that's what these verses are getting at. They're not just, what's the loophole out of marriage? When we come to the Bible looking at it that way, we're missing the point. Jesus is saying that there is an institution that I have put into this world that is different and that points to me. So I want us to just take a few minutes to consider a couple of questions. First, a question for married folk. Here it is. Is Christ's love so evident, and ask this as a couple, is Christ's love so evident in our marriage that people get a glimpse of God's love for his church by how we interact with each other? I think it's a pretty pro- profound question. I don't know what you think. But... This is a question that we should be asking as married couples. We've set a low bar for marriage in our culture. We've set a low bar. As long as you don't get divorced, you're okay. Man, I remember, this is years ago, I was doing marriage counseling for a couple. I'd been married maybe 15 years at the time. they have been married 55 years. They were he was a deacon in the church. She was a leader in other areas in the church. And I'm sitting there with this couple saying, why in the world am I counseling a couple that's been married for 55 years? Who am I? Within about two seconds, I figured out who I was. I was someone with a clue. <laughs> because this brother, who was a leader and a deacon and all these different things, had no clue about what marriage was really about. I mean, it was bad. I'm not going to go into any details, but it was bad. It was not good. But what we need to realize as couples who are married under Christ is that God uses marriage as a means for sanctification in our lives. Can somebody say amen? amen? To learn to forgive, to learn to die to self, to confess our sin, and to desire the good of another person in a way that Jesus Christ is formed more and more in our lives. Christian marriage is meant to point people to Jesus. So I encourage every couple that's here today to talk together tonight about your marriage and how does it reflect Christ And how does it show off Christ to others? And how could that be better? If you're a married couple, that's your homework assignment tonight. And let me also say this before I go to those who aren't married. For Christian leaders, whatever capacity that you lead in, please recognize and realize this. Your marriage is your first ministry. Get that. My marriage, how I treat my wife on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is more important than how well I preach on Sunday. Because you can have a good skill. You can lead well. But if you're a married person and you're leading out of a messy marriage, you're missing your first ministry. So God calls us back. I've got to address this most Important ministry that God has given me, and that is the ministry of my marriage. Good ministry flows out of healthy marriage in God's church. Now, here's the second question, and this is for those who are not married yet, but who desire marriage. Don't lie if you desire marriage. Say, it's all right to desire that. Here's the question. Am I willing to ask God to help me to die to my selfish desires? So that I can pour out love to another person in a way that reflects how God has loved me. That's not usually the question that folks who want to get married are asking, is it? I want someone who looks so fine. He's got to have his stuff together, and I've got all these qualifications for this brother. I need to check that bank account. I need to look at his personal history. Oh, he's got to have it together. And brothers, we do the same thing. The problem is that those who are looking forward to marriage are often looking about their personal fulfillment as the goal of marriage. The primary, that's really the primary reason so many marriages fail. We're looking for a person to do for us what only God can do. We're looking at a person and making an idol out of them. They will make me whole. Listen, marriage is not two halves coming together to become a whole. If you're not whole in Jesus, you're not ready to be married. When we make a person an idol, an idol is something that can promise all day long but can never, ever deliver on its promise. So therefore, for single folks, the most important thing that you can do to prepare yourself for marriage is to dive into a robust, deep and growing relationship with the Lord himself. Listen, are finances important? Yes, they are important. Is a career path important? Yes, a career path is important. There's a lot of things that are important, but here's the thing. When life gets hard, when relationship gets tough, when marriage gets hard, and listen, I can give you a 100% money back guarantee that at some point in marriage is going to get rough. Now, y'all just saying, "Mm mm-hmm, but you know you should say amen. (laughs) Glory to God. I know that's true. You know it's true. At some point and at many points, it's going to get really hard. And having money in the bank's not going to get you through. And having a good career and being thought well of in other circles is not going to get you through. What will get you through is a mutual commitment to the Lord of your life is a growing relationship with Jesus that allows you to forgive when you've been hurt deeply and it allows you to confess your sin and humble yourself when you are in the wrong. And you're going to be on both sides of that numerous times as you walk with someone else. Let's go on to the second point today. Second and final point. Today, marriage is meant to last as long as you live. That's what it's meant for. That's what, in the original creation design, that as long as you live on this earth, that your marriage lasts to the glory of God. Now, we can see in Matthew 5, 32, Jesus allows an exception for that, right? The exception is sexual immorality, But it's clear from the text that that's an exception. Jesus isn't pointing people towards divorce. He's pointing people towards faithfulness in marriage. He also does this in response to the second question by the Pharisees. Look with me again at Matthew 19. And I'll pick it up in verse 7. Matthew 19, verse 7. After Jesus points them back to creation, one flesh union, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then the Pharisees ask, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Let me just stop there for a minute. Jesus is going, he says, he did this because of your stubborn hearts. But in the beginning, before the fall, it wasn't this way because your hearts weren't that way. You're oriented toward God without sin. But it's because of sin entering in that Moses and really God through the law of God makes these allowances, but he's pointing them back to the beginning. And in verse 9 he says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he says what he had said earlier in Matthew 5. We see this teaching at various places in the New Testament. But there are other places in the New Testament when Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, two places at least, Luke sixteen eight and Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 10, when Jesus is dealing with marriage and he makes no exceptions for divorce. There's another place, many of you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is dealing with a particular situation at Corinth where some... uh, Christian couples, at least one person's a Christian. The other non-Christian person, remember, this is the early church. People are getting saved and coming to the Lord, but sometimes their spouse doesn't. And what Paul is dealing with is situations where the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to be in the house anymore with this Christian person. And so they leave and Paul says, well, if they're not pleased to be with you, then you're free as well. So Paul adds another exception. Now, listen, when we look at the scriptures the wrong way, we get to the wrong answer. So some folks just look at these things legalistically. And, and some have said, well, the only possible exception is sexual immorality because that's what Jesus said. Okay, but Paul says something else. Was he wrong? Or was Jesus wrong in Luke 16 or Mark 10 when he didn't talk about sexual immorality? Who's wrong? Who's right? What do we do with the scripture? The problem is we're using the scripture the wrong way. In every and any instance that the New Testament is dealing with marriage, it is dealing with the idea that God wants marriage to last. God wants marriage to, he wants fidelity in marriage. And breaking off of marriage is an imposition to the original design of God. And so we're always being pointed back there, but Jesus and Paul are dealing with specific situations that that mean that there is a problem here. What are we going to do with it? So let let me just emphasize this. So some folks have said that those are the only two possible reasons to end a marriage. So Bible-believing Christians. So if a woman is being abused in her marriage, well, I don't see any scripture that says she can be free from that marriage. Brothers and sisters, that's foolish. You've missed the God of this Bible. To say that someone sits there and is abused over and over again and submitting to a husband who maybe even does it in the name of the Lord is causing this pain and this depth of pain over and over again, and that's sanctioned by God. No, it's not. It's not sanctioned by God. And there could be other exceptions as well that we we don't have to talk about now. But marriage is designed by God to show off his faithful love to his people. So let's look at two necessary implications of that. Number one, marriage must be entered into with the idea of a lifelong covenant. When I do a marriage ceremony, I will say these words, that marriage is not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, but soberly, reverently, and in the fear of God. So marriage is entered into with the idea of a lifelong covenant. I've been doing marriage counseling for years. Only one time have I ever had a couple that came to me for marriage counseling and had a prenuptial agreement. Y'all know what a prenuptial agreement is? It's like we've written up stuff that if this doesn't work, this is where the assets go, right? I've only had one couple that ever did that. She had had, uh, there was something that happened in her family and she got a big settlement. And she said, well, we agreed. I can put that off to the side. That's mine in case this thing doesn't work. What do you think I said to that couple? I said, good. Good. That sounds about right. If you want to guarantee your divorce, you get married with that prenuptial agreement. Because what you've already planned for is for it not to work. I've only had one couple ever do that. And of course, I didn't marry that couple. I'd never marry someone with a prenuptial agreement. That's only happened to me once because I do urban ministry. And let's face it, most folks don't have it like that anyway. (laughs) Prenuptial agreement, okay, my hoopty's worth $500. (laughs) What you got? It just doesn't work. But a lot of people enter into marriage with prenuptial mindsets. My bank account, your bank account. My check, your check. Listen, in marriage, that doesn't work. Marriage, there needs to be less me and more we. In marriage, my turns into our. You even hear it in couples that are struggling. They start talking about their children as if one person produced a child. Right? That's my son. I don't believe she's doing that to my son. Bro, that's her son too. Right? We do this with money all the time. Listen, I'm not saying that in marriage you can't have something that is set aside that you have agreed upon so that you can surprise your wife or you can surprise your husband, you can do things like that. But listen, if most of the money ain't our money, you got a problem in your marriage. Me becomes we, my gets traded in for our. And listen, we also have to remember this in marriage every other relationship that you have especially and including your family of origin has to change brother you can still love mama but mama's not the first woman in your life and a lot of mamas want to be the first woman in your life you can't let her be because you've just made a new a new relationship the one relationship in the world where you make a covenant of oneness before Almighty God and witnesses and say that we are together. Listen, mama might love you, daddy might love you, uncles and aunties and other people who are involved in your life have a lot to say, but at the end of the day, y'all need to work that stuff out together and not let anyone come in between you as husband and wife. Second piece here, divorce should never be sought frivolously, but is a last option that God does make accommodation for. So let's face it. Let's be real. It takes two people to be in a relationship, and it takes two people to stay in a relationship. And sadly, that's not what always happens. I've witnessed many marriages come back from affairs, And thrive again. I've watched marriages come back from financial calamities, from seemingly hopeless situations. They're never going to make it, but they desire to, and they've been able to make it back. I've seen that happen many times. But in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, in 1 Corinthians 7, we see some exceptions where it is allowable under God for divorce to take place. And we could talk, as I said, about other things, abuse in a marriage. What about a marriage where the children are being abused? Do you keep them there? If there's safety issues, you need to get out of that as soon as you can, right? Now, I, I, I would also say seek godly counsel and getting away is not necessarily divorce, right? It could be separation for The sake of of being safe, but get get godly counsel in this. But listen, this is something where some things can happen. What about a situation where a husband or wife is pushing the other person into sin over and over again or into breaking the law over and over again? What do we do in those situations? Listen. We can't use the Bible as if it's the rule book that gives us every situation and every rule. And if you can't find it in there, then you can't do that because the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible reveals to us the character of God. The Bible reveals to us the God of the universe. The Bible reveals to us how we can come into covenant relationship with him. And the Bible reveals to us general practices of how we live according to the wisdom of God and by the power of His Spirit. But He doesn't give us a blow-by-blow every possible thing that you could ever do. If you look at the Bible for that, you're not going to find it. I know many godly people who are divorced. In many cases, there's stories of abuse or ongoing adultery by a spouse. In other cases, these godly people I'm referring to see their own sin as the primary cause or at least a powerful contributing factor to the divorce. In some instances, a divorced person, there might not be sin involved on their part. They were sinned against, and God gives provision here. The important thing to know is this, as we deal with marriage and divorce, that even if there is sin, even if if it is sin, just like our murderous anger is sin, our anger is murder, just like our lust is adultery, according to these verses in Matthew 5, to know that it is covered By the blood of our perfect Savior. Hymn writer put it this way. I love these words. Oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Brothers and sisters, let's take the words of Jesus for what they are. They are a description of God's intended design for kingdom living. As such, we desire to live intentionally to honor God and to honor his decrees. This means that we see marriage as a high and holy calling. This means we never take it lightly. We never take it unadvisedly. At the beginning of this sermon, I said that we shouldn't be surprised in a broken world to see that things break. And sadly, that's not just cars. It's not just TVs. It's not just bodies. But even relationships break in this broken world. But brothers and sisters... The words of Jesus give us hope that the kingdom of heaven has broken into this broken world. And the kingdom of heaven and its power is a place where broken things are made whole. If your marriage is on the edge, I I pray that you'll talk to someone. I'm here. Pastor Tim is here. There are others. We would love to talk to you. If your marriage is in a hard place, talk to us. God is able to put the broken back together. As Jesus' disciples, we live in the present reality of God's kingdom inaugurated on earth. We live looking back to the cross. We live looking back to the resurrection of Christ to overcome sin, and we look forward, looking to his second coming when all things will become new. And so we enter into marriage in this world looking forward to the ultimate marriage that awaits us in that new creation. That's not a marriage between a man and a woman because in the new creation, earthly marriages will cease. I love this lady right here, but in eternity, she's not going to be my wife no more. I think I'm still going to like her a lot, though, but I'm just saying. That's what the Bible says. There's not marriage or giving in marriage in the new creation. But let me just say this. I've, I'm just about to be done here, y'all. But when I hear people just, we all focus on when I die, I want to see my grandmother. I want to see. That, that's a beautiful sentiment. But I hope you want to see Jesus for the Christian person. It's not that I don't care about people who have gone on before me. My mother passed over 35 years ago. Yes, I would love to see my mother, other people that I know and love. But my heart's desire is to see my Lord. I'm part of his bride, the church. Revelation 19, 6, as I close, 6 through 10, says these words. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. He says, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. In parentheses in my Bible, it says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, marriage is God's high and holy and wonderful calling to show forth his glory in this world and to show what we're all looking forward to as men and women and people of God, that one day we will be united with him forever in glory. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would work In every heart in this place. Lord, marriage is not the ultimate thing. Not every person will necessarily be married. And you have provision for that in your word. We don't idolize marriage. But Lord, we do know that you use marriage in glorious ways. And you've designed it to be a glorious thing. And like everything else in this world, the enemy has come in and our flesh comes in. And can mess things up all kinds of ways. So, Lord, we pray that you will do glorious work in the lives of those here that are married. If there are any marriages in trouble, that you will work in those marriages for your glorious good purpose. If there are others here who desire marriage or who are moving towards that, we pray, Lord God, that you will equip them in every way in a depth of relationship with you that their marriage can give great glory to your name. So Lord, have your way in all these things. And we give you thanks and praise and glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.